Welcome to the Making Sense Podcast. This is Sam Harris. Today I'm speaking with Brian Murrescu. Brian holds a degree in Latin, Greek, and Sanskrit from Brown University, as well as a degree in law from Georgetown. He is a practicing lawyer and the author of a fascinating book titled The Immortality Key, The Secret History of the Religion with No Name. And that's the topic of our conversation today. We talk about the mystery religions of the ancient world and the possible psychedelic roots of Christianity. We discuss the mysteries of Eleusis, the pagan continuity hypothesis, the cult of Dionysus, the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Gnostic Gospels, Christianity as a cult of human sacrifice, the evidence for the use of psychedelics in ancient rites, the chemical analysis of ancient wine and beer, why Brian hasn't tried psychedelics himself, the need for something like a modern mysteries of Eleusis, and other topics. Anyway, fascinating piece of history here that is rarely thought about. And now I bring you Brian Murarescu. I am here with Brian Murarescu. Brian, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me, Sam. It's great to be here. Yes, yeah, so you've, you've written this fascinating book, which um, I hear rumors is going to be a fascinating documentary at some point. This is the, uh, the Immortality Key, The Secret History of the Religion with No Name. Am I right about that? Is, there's a, is there a film being made of this book? Yes. I'm not sure how much I can say about it, but there is a, an exceptional team that came together to uh, put this on the screen. Nice. Nice. Well, that's exciting. Do you know the timeline for that? Probably a couple years, although I'm sure I'm wrong about that. And are you going to be on camera for that? Or do you know, are you going to be the, the host of that? Yeah, for better or worse, uh, I guess I'm, uh, I'm a protagonist. So you'll be, that's great. That's great. You'll, you'll, I'll, I'll be leading you down the, the, the blind alleyways of history. Well, that will, be, uh, that will be different than writing the book, no doubt. Uh, although this book, like, unlike most other books, really is, is a bit of a travelogue. I mean, you, you went all over the place to write this thing. And it's a, a literary uh, or um, a historical adventure. Give us a quick uh, snapshot of your background, though. You have this interesting bio that doesn't immediately suggest plumbing the depths of psychedelic history. Uh, wh- where do you come from, and how did you get into this? Yeah, I, I guess I'll, I'll, I'll break the ice with the obvious, uh, is that I've actually never experimented with psychedelics, which always surprises people. Yeah. I'm a relatively boring guy. Um, in my early 40s, I have two daughters. And I guess my journey began as a teenager learning Latin and Greek, of all things. I was forced to learn uh, these dead languages at the hands of the Jesuits when I was a teenager. I went to an all-boys prep school in Philadelphia where the last thing I thought I'd be good at was, was dead language. But turns out that came much easier than mathematics. And so from there, I, I was very fortunate to get a scholarship to Brown University where I doubled down on dead languages and, and studied Sanskrit and later classical Arabic. And after eight years of linguistic studies, did a, did a 180 and went off to law school because I was tired of being broke. So I sold mm-hmm. out to Wall Street and I worked, I worked in New York for a few years and then later moved down to DC where I continued practicing international law for the better part of 15 years until I figured there was, there was a story here worth, worth writing that had uh, really consumed my imagination on, on nights and weekends because well, I felt like I was losing my soul to the practice of law. And in my quiet moments, I'd always return to the classics and to the things I was studying as a, as a younger boy. What is the, uh, the significance of saying of these languages that they are dead? It's that 
no one, they're not in current use as spoken languages by anyone, or is it actually impossible to know that one is speaking them correctly? Maybe a mixture of both, actually. You know, they're, they, they've fallen into desuetude. So unless you hang in the right circles in the Vatican, uh, there aren't many active Latin speakers mm. today. Sanskrit is sort of the same. It's, you know, it's been retained by the, by, by the priestly class, but it's, you know, the Brahmins, but it's not an, an active oral language. And it's really complicated grammatically. So Latin in twists and turns became uh, what we know as Italian, and then Sanskrit more or less uh, Hindi, although again with lots of twists yeah. and turns. And then ancient Greek to modern Greek, maybe it's a bit more, more direct, but, but, but similar. Uh, but though, you know, a modern Greek speaker might have trouble declining ancient Greek verbs. Yeah, yeah. Well, as you point out in the book, ancient Greek is really the key to so much of um, what we seek to know about the, this part of the past, in particular, the roots of Christianity, which you, which you go into in the book. So the, so the thesis of the book correct me if I'm wrong, is essentially you, your investigations into the role played by psychedelics in both in classical antiquity and in early Christianity. Is that a, an adequate encapsulation of, of the book? Yeah, sure. Yeah, I was, I was really taken by the, by the idea of uh, what Houston Smith, one of, one of the great uh, religious scholars of the 20th century, uh, referred to as the best kept secret in history. That kind of mm. stops you in your tracks. The, 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 this idea that the ancient Greeks may have consumed something like a psychedelic potion in, in their, their holiest mysteries and, and their most sacred ceremonies, and that just perhaps this, this formula, this potion, uh, made its way into Paleo-Christianity in those, those early days after the life of Christ. And you know, it's not my idea. This is an idea that goes back probably to the 1970s, if not before. There was a bit of an incendiary book that was published in 1978 called The Road to Eleusis. Mm -hmm. And it was there that Gordon Wasson, the, the famed ethnomycologist who rediscovers psilocybin-containing mushrooms in the mountains of Oaxaca, Mexico in the 1950s, teams up with Albert Hoffman, of all people, who famously synthesized LSD back in 1938, and then a fellow classicist, Professor Ruck, who's still alive. He's the only one of the trio still alive, now 88 years old a tenured professor at Boston University. Together, they proffered the idea that the ancient Greeks were in fact consuming something like an, uh, an LSD-laced beer in the mysteries of Eleusis, which was sort of like the Vatican of the ancient Greek world that survived for about 2,000 years. So as long as we've had Christianity today, the ancient pre-Christian, very pagan Greeks, once a year would show up on the doorstep of this sanctuary Eleusis, northwest of Athens, and indeed consume this potion whose, whose ingredients and whose true character had remained elusive for so many centuries. Well, I want to talk about Eleusis. This is pretty much the starting point for um, your journey in the book, and it's a, certainly a natural starting point when talking about the role that the psychedelics may or may not have played in antiquity. I guess there's a, you also talk about the Soma cult, as attested in the, uh, in the Vedas which um, I guess is equally ancient. I mean, the, the, actually, the, what I had forgotten about, if I ever knew it, about the mysteries of Eleusis is just how long they persisted for. I mean, this is astonishing history. There's nearly 2,000 years of a continuous rite that became you know, central to the, the spiritual and intellectual life of 
the ancient Greeks and and you know through the Hellenistic period and and even into the Roman conquest of the area and the people who we know or have good reason to believe participated are you know they're the, the leading lights of ancient Western thought there I mean Plato and Aristotle and Sophocles and Pindar and among the Romans who have Cicero and Marcus Aurelius and, and others. And it's just astounding history to contemplate. And also, it's yet another thing that, <laughs> that early Christianity consciously destroyed in a Taliban-like erasure of, of the past. I mean, this is in the fourth century. Before we go to Eleusis itself, that the book you just cited, The Road to Eleusis, was controversial. It was especially controversial for Ruck, right? I mean, the classicist who contributed to it. What, why was this thesis so radioactive in classical circles? Because as we get into the details, I think it'll become obvious, certainly to anyone who has taken psychedelics, that it is all too plausible that psychedelics were invo- of some sort were involved here. Well, why, why was this just, I mean, this essentially led to the scholarly cancellation of Ruck, as you describe? Yeah, correct. I think in 1978, it was just the wrong book at the wrong time. I think it was quite a few decades ahead of its time. I mean, my book came out in 2020, and I don't think I've, I've experienced an iota of the, of the controversy that Karl Ruck once did in the late 1970s through the 1980s and 1990s. I mean, it wasn't very controversial, I think, even then in the 70s, that, that indigenous or traditional societies, for example, had, had consumed psychedelic compounds of one kind or another for, for many millennia across the world, from the Americas to Africa and the Asia Pacific. But for some reason, the notion that the ancient Greeks, and Karl Ruck actually says this in The Road to Eleusis, it's one of my favorite lines. He says that you know, the, the notion that the ancient Greeks, indeed some of the most famous and intelligent among them, all those whom you named, by the way, and not just Greeks, but Romans, and not just Romans, but emperors, Marcus Aurelius himself, the fact that they would mm. enter so fully into such irrationality was anathema to the academy of the time. I mean, imagine the, you know, the founding fathers of Western civilization getting high on drugs and inventing democracy. It's, it's, it's absurd. Well, so what is it that we know about the mysteries of Eleusis in terms of when, when they were conducted, how they were conducted, who attended, just the mechanics of it? And I, I think as, you, as we describe this, it'll seem increasingly likely that it had to be more than just a collective initiation unaided by pharmacology. I mean, given the, the life transformative effects alleged, for it to be reproducible and to bear that significance, it's, it really it would be hard to believe that it's just a matter of people having hiked a, a long time in the sun and, and gotten dehydrated and <laughs> gotten inducted into some you know, collective hysteria, again, unaided by, uh, by something in that beer. Yeah, I think you nailed it. Professor Ruck refers to uh, that experience at Eleusis as the culminating experience of a lifetime. So what we do know is that it was absolutely transforming. We know, we know bits and details and we have clues that have been left in some of the literature, but it's important to point out that it was illegal to reveal what you saw at Eleusis and what you had experienced at Eleusis. And it typically only happened once in your life, typically later in life. So this is something that you whether consciously or not, we're preparing for for a very long time, right? Right, right, for decades in your, as part of your spiritual journey. So there was a certain maturity that attended these, these mysteries. Is there um, any reason to believe that a person could only attend the um, mysteries once? Or are there records of people 
having done it more than once? Yeah, as far as we know, for some reason, it only happened once or, or actually twice in the same sequence. So you would make this 13-mile this march northwest of Athens. It would start in Athens. It's a nine-day affair, uh, which included this, this ritual march and fasting uh, and this procession, sacrifices along the way from Athens up to what is today called Elefsina. It's still there, the, the archaeological mm-hmm. site. And so what happens along the way, we're not quite sure about, but on your first approach, it always happens, it always happens in the fall. Uh, you become what's called a mystes, a mystic. It's where we get the word mystic, which literally means to close your eyes or to shut your mouth. In other words, you are being initiated into the first level of this, of this great pageant, this culminating experience of, of your life. And then only on your second approach, do you enter fully into the telesterion, the, the ancient sanctuary that was dedicated to the goddess Demeter. And only then, perhaps, do you drink this ritual potion that we mentioned before, which is called the kukion, in ancient Greek. And only then did you become what's called an epoptes, which in Greek means something like the person who has seen it all. You've seen it everything. It was an eye-opening event. And that's very, very clear about the ancient mysteries. You saw something. And mm-hmm. you mentioned Aristotle, for example, as a potential initiate. Uh, he was also very clear that you did not go to Eleusis to learn anything. And he uses the Greek word mathain, like mathematics. You went mm-hmm. there to experience something. And he uses the word pathain, like pathos. He went there to actually suffer, to experience something. And we know to see something. Plato describes it as a blessed sight and vision that he experienced in sort of a state of ecstasy. And through time and time again, this is what the initiates are saying about the experience. You went there and you saw something that forever changed you and convinced you beyond all rationality that you were in fact an immortal, that you would never die. Yeah. And and it's amazing to consider that these rites were practiced continuously for about a thousand years prior to Plato and Aristotle. Correct. They're described in Homer, which is, what is that, you know, 500 years or so before Plato and Aristotle? Correct. The rites could begin as far as we know in some form or another, 1500 BC. So we're talking the Mycenaean period, which is extremely old as far as classics goes. Yeah. So the temple at Eleusis was the temple to Demeter and, and, uh, focused on essentially a cult around the uh, Persephone story. Is that correct? Correct, yeah. Persephone, to remind those who haven't thought about her since their high school mythology mm-hmm. class, she's, she, she's the one who's, uh, who's abducted, a better word is raped. Uh, she, 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 she's brought down to the underworld by the king of the dead himself, Hades, and she's held captive there. And uh, she's only released on the, the covenant that she has to return once again to hell which has always been interpreted as a, as a fertility cycle, as a, an explanation of, of how the, the, the seasons rotate one after the other. So she always has to spend one part of the year in hell, and then she can rejoin her mother Demeter for two, two-thirds of the year back on, back on Earth. But you know, at, at its base, this, this is um, a ritual of death and rebirth, just like Persephone her, her herself. So when the initiates go there, it is thought that they experience something like her death and resurrection. So again, the notion of resurrection centuries before the birth of Christianity. And there were other mystery cults in practice simultaneously, right? And very likely with their own pharmacological enhancements. So there's the cult of Dionysus that you describe. And, and uh, just give me a picture of the religious landscape at that point as, as we know it. I mean, how, how far did it spread Geographically, I mean, you know, this is we're talking about ancient Greece, but what what does that mean on on the map? And 
how you know we're going to bring the birth of Christianity in, into the, the story here. How do you view the religious landscape during this period? So it's an interesting one, and it's I don't think it's too different from the landscape today, to be totally honest, which is part of the reason I was attracted to these mysteries, even as a teenager, because there's something about choice and, and, and movement and idiosyncrasy to these mysteries. It's very personal. It's about your, your personal spiritual journey to the exclusion of you know, what was largely a state cult practice, where you know, there were those Olympian gods and there were certain sacrifices that were made at certain times of the year to well-known divinities. And that was all well and good, but there was a bit of roteness to it. And so in these mysteries, again, they're, they're, they're defined best by this notion of death and rebirth. It's, it's personalizing that spiritual journey in an approach to the true self. So there's this notion of, of dying to the false self and resurrecting to the notion of the true self, which comes in many, many forms. So it's not just in mainland Greece itself. We're talking about the Eleusinian mysteries, which are headquartered there. The mysteries of Dionysus you can find all over the ancient Mediterranean, by the way, before, during, and after the life of Christ. And there's a number of parallels, I think, between those Dionysian mysteries, the mysteries of wine, and the later mysteries of, of Christianity, which actually they, they themselves were referred to and compared to mysteries by one of the church fathers, Tertullian. So uh, this is not just wild speculation. Uh, there's this notion of secrets and, and magical sacraments and, and hidden ceremonies that are unique to the mysteries and, and do show up in early Christianity. Um, but there were all kinds of mysteries around the ancient Mediterranean. And during the Hellenistic period that you mentioned, that's basically the period after Alexander the Great. So in the wake of Alexander in the fourth century BC and beyond, you know, the Greek influence, the Greek language, Greek ritual, and some of these mysteries could be found anywhere from, you know, the, the West, so Iberia, uh, what today we call Spain and Portugal, all the way to literally Afghanistan, Central Asia, and all mm. across North Africa. So, you know, the, the reach of this culture and this idea of mystery was, was vast. And it precedes the Greeks, by the way. The Greeks likely adopted this notion of the mysteries from either the Egyptians or Mesopotamian civilizations, or I make the comparison to the, the Vedic civilizations in South Asia, you know, millennia before classical Greece. So this is an old tradition, which in all likelihood is probably prehistoric, actually. We're talking mm. potentially tens of thousands of years. I want to read the uh, quote you put in the book from Cicero, who, who is this, um, you know, one of the more famous Roman statesmen and, and orators and writers that we, we recall. Um, we don't know how much history has been lost to us, but uh, he, he survives. But it's just it's impossible for me to imagine a statement like this about an ordinary ritual. I mean, so this is Cicero commenting upon the Eleusinian mysteries. For it appears to me that among the many exceptional and divine things your Athens has produced and contributed to human life, nothing is better than those mysteries. I mean, just think of think of a statement like that. I mean. Given how beholden Roman civilization was to the Greek, I mean, they, they inherited, they, they copied everything, the, the art, the architecture, the, they just took all the gods and just renamed them. I mean, it's just, it was just a, a reboot of the whole culture in, in, in so many ways. And so for Cicero to say that this is really the, the central jewel of Greek civilization is, a, is a, just an astounding statement. Okay, so back to C Cicero. For by means of them, we have been transformed from a rough and savage way of life to the state of humanity, and have been civilized, 
Just as they are called initiations, so in actual fact we have learned from them the fundamentals of life and have grasped the basis not only for living with joy, but also for dying with a better hope. Right, so there's just something about you know, knowing that there's a kind of a, I think you start the book with this, the colophon, that you, if you die before you die, you don't die when you die, or something close to that. What is the origin of that Greek phrase, if you die before you die, you won't die when you die? Yeah, so interestingly, that, that comes from the Christian tradition, which uh-huh. is you know, part of what I'm, I'm investigating in this book is that continuity from the pagan world, potentially the prehistoric right. world, into Christianity. So, so, so that phrase actually comes from a monastery. It comes from the St. Paul's Monastery on Mount, Mount Athos in Greece, mm-hmm. which is one of the holiest sites in, in Greek Orthodoxy, Eastern Orthodoxy, which I think is, yeah. is awfully peculiar because there, there's this notion of, of dying before dying you find across the world's religions, by the way, they're enshrined in a monastery on Mount Athos, which, again, I couldn't think of a better description of uh, the ancient pagan mysteries themselves. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But just so when you imagine what experience someone like Cicero must have had to have said that about, about its significance in comparison with the rest of, of uh, what Greek civilization had produced, it is hard to imagine that it was, you know, the, the unaided aspirant uh, just by force of his whatever concentration he's mustered over those nine days, you know, that, that it would be an experience of a sort that could be honestly described in that way with the knowledge that it would be reproducible. And the, the thing that's so unique about psychedelics, and, and I will inevitably return to the fact that you haven't taken any <laughs> at some point in this conversation, the thing that's so important and unique about them is that barring the tiniest number of neurological outliers, basically they work for everybody, right? I mean, you take a thousand people and give them the requisite dose of, of whatever psychedelic, psilocybin or LSD or you know, MDMA, not, not technically a psychedelic, but still effective in, in its own purview. A thousand out of a thousand people will have a very significant experience. Now, some may have a terrifying experience, some may witness the, some version of the beatific vision, but virtually no one, again, with the tiniest number of exceptions, will be bored and, and claim that nothing had happened, right? Now, that is not something you can say about yoga or prayer or meditation or anything else you can subject people to, even over the course of nine days where you, where you can just say, all right, this is, you know, 100% of the people who cross this threshold are going to come out saying that was astounding, right? That was the central moment of, of my life on earth. And with psychedelics, you really can reliably say that. Again, you know, modulo all of the, the casualties, the people who, who feel, you know, ruined by the experience as opposed to improved, uh, which will also happen. But so that's what makes your thesis so plausible, absent any of the other evidence we're going to talk about. It's just, I just can't get someone like Cicero saying such a thing or writing such a thing in the absence of some reproducible stimulus of that sort. Yeah, it had to be reproducible, which is not to say that the Greeks weren't good at ritual and ceremony. But, you know, one of mm-hmm. the prevailing hypotheses that preceded the psychedelic hypothesis was that it was something like a theatrical production. Well, that, that's a pretty damn good theatrical production. <laughs> that, is, that is Taylor Swift uh, on, uh, on steroids. <laughs> or on psilocybin, as the case may be. Yeah. No, that, that's probably a good show. Uh, yeah. un- unfortunately, 
no, no, no theatrical structures have been found at the archaeological site. And we know the Greeks were good at drama and tragedy and comedy, right? Yeah. And so there may have been a pageant of sorts. There may have been a reenactment of that, of that ritual abduction and, and descent to the underworld and the reascent to the life of mortals. But you know, as far as we know, there was something internal happening to the initiates. And as far as we can tell, they, they were journeying with Persephone into the underworld. One of the scholars that I reference throughout the book uh, is Peter Kingsley. He's a favorite scholar of mine. And he has this great, this great notion about going down to the underworld. He says, you know, when you go down to the underworld, when you're already dead, that's one thing, not particularly impressive. But, you know, to go there while you're alive, prepared and knowingly, and then to learn from that experience, that's another thing entirely. And I think that's what Cicero is getting at. When he, when he calls the mysteries of Eleusis the most exceptional and divine thing that Athens ever produced, right? To the mm-hmm. exclusion of democracy and the arts and sciences and mathematics and all the things we take for granted today, including the origins of free speech. There's, there's something astounding uh, happening at this site. And when I first stumbled on the psychedelic hypothesis and then began reading about the, the modern day experiences and some of these clinical trials over the past 20 years, you know, two and two started to come together for me. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So where does Christianity come into the picture here? And I, maybe one place to start is this notion of the pagan continuity hypothesis. I mean, what is that? And how should we view the first you know, century of Christianity through the lens of, or even centuries before it became the state religion of Rome, through the lens of, of these mystery religions? Right. So Christianity does not become the state religion until about 380 under Theodosius. So you have you know, roughly 350 years after the death of Christ, while Christianity is in fits and starts, you know, here, here persecuted, here tolerated. But you know, altogether, I would say an underground religion. That changes into the fourth century after Constantine, obviously. But for a good couple hundred years, it's illegal. I think we often forget. And it looks very, very different from any Christianity you might be familiar with today. And, you know, and it's two and a half billion adherents. The biggest religion in the world starts off, you know, pretty strangely. It is an underground cult, in some cases, literally. So in those early days after Christ, remember, there are no basilicas. There are no physical church buildings. There's no Bible. At least there's, there's no agreed dogma for the Bible. That also doesn't happen until the fourth century AD. Women are involved, at least uh, some of the evidence suggests from different catacombs and frescoes you can look at underground. Uh, so it's, it's, it's a very different religion than we have today. It's local. I would say it's hyper-local. There isn't, you know, the central bureaucracy that we, that we find today. And again, it has that air of choice and movement and idiosyncrasy that I mentioned about the ancient mysteries. It was about your connection to the eternal and to that immortal spark inside yourselves. And, and so people would get together and meet under the auspices of this mystery figure, Jesus, who in some senses does really resemble Dionysus. And mm. you know, I, I quote at length from this book, the, the Dionysian Gospel by MacDonald. And in there, you can see this interesting parallel in the ancient Greek from, from the Bacchae of Euripides, which debuts on stage there at the Theater of Dionysus in 405 BC. And some of the peculiar Greek of John. And so, you know, it's really impossible, I like to say, to understand the origins of Christianity in the absence of a working knowledge of Greek, because the earliest Christians were Greek speakers. You know, Jesus is born 
in the Holy Land. His mission takes place there, as we know. But you know, Christianity really thrives and is propagated across the Greek-speaking part of the Mediterranean in places like Greece, Turkey, North Africa, and, and Italy, including, including Rome and, and, and South Italy. And I think those kinds of people were the, were the Greek speakers who were very familiar with these ancient mystery traditions, both the mysteries of Eleusis and those of Dionysus, where, lo and behold, the consumption of the magical wine of Dionysus, which was referred to as his blood by someone like Timotheus mm. of Miletus 400 years before the birth of Jesus, was something that was taken almost for granted, that you would consume this blood in the form of wine in order to become one with the god Dionysus. That's where we get this notion of enthusiasm, being possessed in ecstasy by the god. It's not only the birth of the theater, it's why ancient Greek becomes the language of the New Testament, because of this experience that was happening in honor of the god Dionysus all the way back in Athens. Yeah, so you, you've sketched part of it, but um, I just want to, since I used the phrase, I just want to make sure we've actually described it, uh, the, the pagan continuity hypothesis. Well, wh- how would you define that? Right, so that, that's the notion that these pre-Christian rites, ceremonies, and practices carry over into mm. the Paleo-Christian era. So, you know, we're talking about the Greco-Roman period. So, you know, things particularly from the classical period of Greece, so anywhere from four or 500 BC, which would include these, these kinds of mysteries and uh, the kinds of beers that were being mixed and the kinds of wines that were being mixed. And they were both very different from the beers and wines of today. It's the notion that, that specifically those kinds of beverages, but that in general, these practices carried over into the early days after Jesus. And you know, this is not a strange idea. Dr. Martin Luther King himself actually wrote an, an essay about this in 1950. You can Google it. It's called mm-hmm. The Influence of the Mystery Religions on Christianity. So this is, this, is, this is widely known in academic circles. Where do the Dead Sea Scrolls and the, the Gnostic Gospels come in here? I mean, we have a, you know, like the Gospel of Thomas, which you describe in the book, which it, it takes a very different, you know, more mystical slant than much of what one gets in the New Testament. Maybe we could say something about the, about the discovery of these texts, which were, I mean, it's just, it's, it was astounding that something could be discovered in this way and this late, I think it was 1945 that we, we discovered these, right. these texts and it took about 30 years or so to translate them. What does this add to the picture of, of early Christianity? Well, see, this is why historians and classicists and archaeologists still have jobs, I think. You know, mm. We do discover things every, every now and again. And then in the 1940s, as you mentioned, uh, there were these 52 additional texts that we didn't really know about, which have become known now as the Nag Hammadi Corpus. They were dug up there in, in Egypt, and they, and they cast an entirely different light on the person of Jesus. The Gospel of Thomas, in particular, you know, portrays Jesus as not somebody to be imitated and worshipped as the Son of God separate from us, but a sort of a mentor or, or a guide along the path to personal salvation. And, and again, these, these, these Gnostic circles certainly have much more in common with those ancient Greek mysteries. I mentioned Tertullian before, uh, one of these church fathers mm. who writes in the second century, and he specifically makes the comparison between this Gnostic version of Christianity and these, these ancient pagan pre-Christian mystery rites. You know, whether or not that included the consumption of psychedelics is neither here nor there, but this notion that the Gnostics were after direct knowledge. And that, that, that's, what, that's what Gnosticism means. It comes from the Greek uh, gnosis, which means unmediated direct knowledge of the divine, which is to say 
the recognition that within you there is this divine spark, uh, that there is no, no, no heavenly father up in the clouds separate from us, from humanity, from life at large, but that, but that you yourself carry a part of that light, a part of that divine spark. Yeah, that's essentially, at least as I, as I read it in your description, the distinction that Aristotle was making with respect to the, the significance of what's happening at Eleusis. It's not about knowing more facts. It's about having a, an experience that delivers a participatory transformation of one's you know, vision of the world and, and one's place in it. But so would Aristotle wouldn't have used, presumably he could have used the word kenosis, right? Um, that's not the term he used? Conceivably, yeah, that, that, that shows up later, this notion of, of kenosis. I don't think in the classical period they made those, those distinctions. They didn't really have a word for God either, which I think is really interesting, mm-hmm. at, least mm-hmm. the, at least the Abrahamic God, I think, that we're more familiar yeah. with, with today. And I'm, I'm a big fan of, of Platonism and Neoplatonism. You know, they often refer to the, the mystery of mysteries, I'll, I'll, I'll put it, mm-hmm. as, as the good or the one, which I think is, is really interesting. And so you know, there is this notion of monotheism that exists you know, in parallel with uh, the Abrahamic traditions, and it's it's referred to as as philosophical monotheism, you know. So it's you certainly find it in in Plato, uh, and you especially find it in the Neoplatonists. And again, this is after the life of Christ and folks like Plotinus, who's this Neoplatonist right. of the third century A.D. Um, so this this notion of philosophical monotheism and and the direct experience of the divine, you know, it carries on before, during, and after the life of Christ. You know, Christianity is is brewing in this melting pot. Of all these, you know, fairly esoteric ideas. Yeah, there's something we're we're used to the iconography and story and symbolism of Christianity to a degree that I think we're we're inured to its its fundamental strangeness. You know, certainly in a modern context. I mean, there there are elements here that are just weird, and I think we should find surprising, and, and yet we don't because they're just this is just what the Christian story is. But the the idea that what is essentially a, a cannibal ritual is the the normal way of <laughs> worshiping Jesus, right? Like, well, like, how is it that no one is batting an eye at the prospect of eating his body and drinking his blood, right? And and the idea that he would be sacrificed for the sins of all humanity that that it, here here we're we're endorsing a an actual human sacrifice. Looked at from above, this does look like a cannibal cult of human sacrifice on some level. And one of the innovations in the Old Testament was to, to swap human sacrifice for animal sacrifice. But still, there's this notion of sacrifice and the consumption of, of what has been sacrificed. And it's you know, the idea that in, you know, in a modern context, no one really does the, the arithmetic there and, and, and to notice what is actually being suggested just seems strange to me, standing outside the tradition. What, what do we know about people's sense of the propriety of drinking human blood? Why would that be the thing that one would, would be you know, symbolically inspired to do with wine or beer or anything else? We, we began talking about it in, the, in those, uh, those synergies between Dionysus and Jesus. So you know, to be clear, Dionysus is not the god of, of wine, at least not simply put. And he's certainly not the god of alcohol. Um, because the Greeks had no word for alcohol. 
it's important to mention. That, that, that word comes from the Semitic, as it sounds, alcohol. Mm. Uh, it means that to paint or to stain, a coal was the, the powder that was used to ornament the eyes. So, you know, the, the Greeks had no notion of the inebriating effects of, of that fermentation process. At least they had no word for it. And so when you're talking about Dionysus as the god of theater or, or mystical rapture, you're really talking about delirium or frenzy or madness or insanity. So Dionysus, uh, you know, in, in communing with him and drinking his wine, which is his blood, you are entering into this pact. And it's, it's, an un, it's an uncertain pact. It's an ambiguous pact around madness. And, you know, does madness, madness truly make you insane? Or, or does it, you know, on occasion bring enlightenment? But it's certainly uncertain, and there's a risk proposition there. And I, I, those are the parallels I love looking at with, with Jesus, because, you know, the, the Christian promise, I did grow up in the tradition, by the way, full disclosure. I went to 13 mm. years of Catholic school. Mm-hmm. And so, like, I was just told... Jesuit, yeah. <laughs> so when I was five, just told, you know, to drink... I would eventually drink the blood and eat the flesh, and okay, that, that, I guess that's what you do. You know, but at the time, you know, don't, don't forget how unabashedly cannibalistic and drastic that is to the ancient Jewish population, for example. And whenever I have this discussion, I always have to point out one line from the Gospels, and I hope your listeners will, will Google it. It's the sixth chapter of John, verse 60. And you know, John is talking about this notion of cannibalism because Jesus has just made the promise, the central promise of Christianity. If you munch my flesh and drink my blood, you are immortal. You have eternal life. Not that you will have it at some future undefined moment. You become eternal the moment you drink my blood and eat my flesh. Now, Jesus is not saying if you sit down in the the cave or if you go off and meditate for 10 years or if you practice these breathing exercises. He's saying if you consume me, if you consume my, my flesh and blood, if you enter into this process of theophagy, right? Eating the God to become the God, mm. which is ancient and prehistoric. If you enter into this process, you too will become like me. And it was the same promise that was offered to the Dionysian initiates, again, for centuries and centuries before Christ. And it's a very strange idea today. Um, I mentioned in the book, one of these polls, that like something like 69% of American, Catholic, of American Catholics do not believe in transubstantiation, that the otherwise mm. ordinary bread and wine become this miraculous flesh and blood. You know, people have a hard time kind of, you know, grappling with that. But, you know, to the ancient mind, theophagy was real. The promise was real. And again, to the ancient Greek speaker and participant, I don't think they would have found that phrase in the least bit shocking. Uh, because again, the language comes from these, this, the, this Dionysian mystery tradition where it was, it was accepted, it was taken for granted that you do in fact become one with the God through uh, these sacramental potions. And again, this is, this is not controversial among classicists either. Ancient Greek scholars um, routinely refer to you know, the sacramental drinking of the blood of Dionysus as the thing that brings ecstasy. And ecstasy was prized in the ancient Greek world. A mania, madness was prized. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting that the point you make about there not having a term for alcohol or, the, or the, therefore the concept of the intoxicating molecule in the wine or beer or anything else that they would have fermented and, and drunk to that effect. In addition, they, they didn't have a, any concept of the underlying neurology of, of experience and, its, and the, the fact that you were you know, changing the brain in a transitory way by, by ingesting alcohol for which they had no word. So one thing they, they almost certainly weren't doing, which modern 
initiates with psychedelics might well do, and, and certainly commonly do, is to give a deflationary account of the experience on the basis of the knowledge that it was the result of, you know, quote, drugs, right? So if you, if you take psilocybin now or MDMA or LSD and you have an intensely positive, you know, visionary experience, one thing you might do to discount its significance is to say, well, that's just the way the world looks when you're on drugs, right? And like that's, it's almost by definition not true or not more real because you had to perturb your nervous system in that way with this exogenous compound in order to see it. And, and when you're no longer stoned, you're seeing the world as it, quote, truly is, because it, with, all, with all the, you know, the boring sobriety of, you know, your day-to-day -day waking awareness. But, you know, in the ancient context, there would have been none of that discounting because there's no, there's no concept, none of the underlying concepts that would give you a reason to, to assert the provisionality of the vision. This is just the experience you had, and it's, it was the most important one. And, I, I, and I'm, not, I'm not actually saying that I think you can discount the insights one has on psychedelics in, in quite that way in a modern context either, but it's just there, there would have been no tools conceptually by which to do it 2,000 years ago. So let's back up for a second and, and give, you know, there, there are several strands of evidence in your book converging on this question of whether or not the kukion in, in, in Eleusis or, in, you know, the, the wine drunk in the um, Dionysian rite or, or anything else was spiked or likely spiked by some psychedelic compound. I mean, so you're, you're looking at ancient texts you're doing linguistic analysis, you know, the sort we just described, e.g. there's no term for alcohol there. You're looking at archaeology, you're looking at archaeobotany and archaeochemistry. What are the converging lines of evidence here, and, and what do you find to be the most compelling on this point that, to suggest that very likely it was more than wine in any one of these cups? Right. So much of, we, of what we've discussed so far was largely laid out in The Road to Eleusis back in 1978. So again, it's, it, it was a cogent interpretation of the classical evidence, right? The iconographic and textual data. That, that's what classicists do. And Professor Ruck did a, did a masterful job together with uh, Gordon Wasson and Albert Hoffman. But there was something missing. Uh, the, the, the hard data was missing. And, and I don't think I'd have a book without some of the hard data. And so I, I became really obsessed with what the botanists and chemists were doing and how, if at all, they were interacting with the historians and the classicists and the biblical scholars and the textualists to try and figure out what, what were our ancient ancestors actually consuming. Because again, like I mentioned, there's nothing particularly controversial about traditional societies in maybe the Americas or Africa or the Asia Pacific imbibing certain potions, you know, taking in certain drugs. But the notion that this was happening in, in ancient Greece uh, remains sort of a third rail in, in the classical debate. You know, and so I kind of just, I tried my best to follow the trail of clues where it led. And I found out pretty quickly that, you know, there was some evidence emerging that ancient wine was very different from the wine of today, which is essentially fermented grapes. You know, the, the, the wine of antiquity was routinely spiked with all kinds of, of additives. And that could be everything from just, you know, spices and perfumes uh, to toxins, things that could kill you. Remember how Socrates dies with the, the hemlock mm -hmm. wine? to, you know, some of these magical hallucinogenic potions that we're discussing. And so I remember the, there was a, a study that came out in 2013 or 14 uh, by Andrew Coe, who's now at, at the Yale Peabody Museum. 
and has just actually launched uh, the, the Yale Ancient Pharmacology Program to, to probe further into these kinds of questions. And you know, about a decade ago, he discovered uh, at Tel Kabri, which is in uh, modern-day Galilee in uh, the north of Israel, what, what he termed uh, the, the world's oldest wine cellar, which is interesting. So it wasn't just mm. fermented grapes, but in this palatial wine cellar of near Eastern royalty dating back to 1700 BC, they found, in fact, wine that was spiked with all kinds of ingredients like honey and storax and terebinth, cypress, cedar, juniper, mint, myrtle, cinnamon for flavor. Um, and when he sees all these different additives popping up on, on the mass spec analysis, mass spectrometry, you know, he too begins to wonder you know, how far uh, this really goes. It turns out you know, ancient wine did have all these other ingredients. And so you know, at times they could be used to kill you, in the case of Socrates, and at times to heal you, and at other times to deliver this sort of ecstatic experience. And so I was really keen on, on finding the example of actual ancient beer and actual ancient wine that could have potentiated these ancient Greek and early Christian mysteries. And so my, my entire book basically re- re- revolves around these, these two discoveries that were made 20 years ago, by the way, and largely kind of mm-hmm. flew under the radar for, for reasons that are not, not totally clear to me. I started following the, a trail of clues in the first case to this ergotized beer. And I'll point out that, that ergot is this naturally occurring fungus uh, that shows up on wheat and barley and rye, and it's, it's how we actually synthesize LSD. It's what Albert Hoffman himself used to synthesize LSD, ergot. And so I, I was basically scanning all these journal articles and all these old textbooks for any hints of ergot actually making its way into an ancient beer container. And lo and behold, it actually showed up at this, at this site in, in Spain from the 1990s. Uh, and the excavators there, uh, they found some chalices in a very uh, Greek-influenced ritual complex, which we can get into. But when they did the analysis on these, these tiny vessels, uh, which they describe as, as Dionysian, by the way, it's this, it's this uh, the, the mm. shape and form of the vessel. It's very Greek. It's called a kantros. It's, it's the, the kind of cup that was used by the god Dionysus himself inside these ritual complexes. What they found were the remnants of beer. Uh, we know that from the archaeobotany. And they also, know, uh, they also uh, found uh, the remnants uh, of ergot, microscopic remains of ergot. And so, you know, for the first time, I thought, oh, we, with a straight face, we can say you know, ergotized beer actually existed. And of all the places for it to show up, it shows up uh, around the 2nd century BC in this, this site in Spain, this Hellenistic site, where it seems, and this is what the archaeologists themselves say, it seems like uh, the, these very Greek-influenced Iberians were trying to reenact the mysteries of Demeter and Persephone and Dionysus and, and all those, uh, those gods and goddesses of the Greek pantheon. And so it's, it was a very strange find, uh, but it was published in the Catalan language, of all things, mm-hmm. not even in Spanish. And so for that mm-hmm. reason, uh, went largely unacknowledged by the academic community for yeah, the better part of like 20 years. And, and I hounded the archaeologists and the excavators and the archaeobotanists to make sure they actually found what they found. And I, I just, <laughs> I browbeat it the archaeobotanist mm-hmm. into going to his beach house to find uh, the files and the original, uh, the original report that he typed up for this amazing discovery 20, 25 years ago. Uh, and turns out they really did find what, the, what they found. And so that led on to other questions about the nature of, of wine in the ancient world. Mm. And uh, so why isn't that finding dispositive? Why, why can't you... Do you feel that you can rest your case on an example of that sort? No, because I'm, I'm a skeptic and I'm, and I'm very unsatisfied with myself. I think it's, it's good framing. And I always talk about the immortality key as framing the conversation 
versus offering answers. Mm. And I was always hoping this would be, you know, an impetus to, for further scholarship and, and research and things worth uh, showing in a documentary, for example, this, this, this adventure hunt through, through history to find these other clues, uh, which we're doing. Mm. Um, it's not dispositive because, you know, long story short, it's Spain. It's not, it's not Greece. And so even though the archaeologists at the site are very confident, you know, this was a Greek-inspired mystery, right, that looks, you know, in all respects, some, like an Eleusinian mystery reenactment. It's not, you know, it wasn't excavated at Eleusis, you know, near Athens on mainland Greece. You know, that, that would be the smoking gun. If you found something like what was already dug up, except it's in, it's in Eleusis or it's near Eleusis or anywhere in mainland Greece, I think that would really seal the deal for this LSD lace beer. Mm. So what about the Christian practice in the early centuries? Is there any evidence that there was a, um, a similar use of uh, something beyond wine or psychedelically potentiated wine? Right. So that was in the second half of my book. And so in the first half of my book, I'm you know, asking these questions and I'm trying to you know, demonstrate why these ancient Greek potions uh, were so critical to the, the pagan continuity argument that they may have made their way into ancient Christianity. So if, if there's no Greek precedent, it makes no sense to write the second half of the book. It makes no sense yeah. to talk about psychedelics at the roots of Christianity. Um, and by the way, I'm not claiming that you know, the historical Jesus uh, would have consumed psychedelics or you know, some of the apostles would have. I think that you know, the hypothesis I'm pursuing is that some of the Greek-speaking Paleo-Christians in those early centuries, those who were influenced by Greek culture, would have seen in the way Jesus is portrayed in the Gospel of John, for example, or in some of these Gnostic Gospels, as another means of approaching that mystery, similar to the mysteries of Eleusis and similar to the mysteries of Dionysus. And so mm. with that ergotized beer chalice in hand from Spain, this one was a, was a bit easier, but also a bit more mysterious. I, I came across another article from 20 years ago, interestingly, um, an archaeobotanical journal uh, that talks about this spiked wine that was found outside Pompeii, uh, which is inter interesting both in time and place because this is where you know, early Christianity is beginning to bubble up in, in southern Italy. Uh, there's actually really strong uh, Greek-speaking Christian presence in that part of the peninsula in the first century after Jesus. And what they found at this, at this farm, this, this rustic farm, were these big old dolia full of grape seeds. And together with the grape seeds, which were evidence of a kind of wine, uh, they found seeds that belonged to opium and cannabis and henbane and black nightshade, which are awfully trippy and kind of dangerous plants, if you know anything about mm -hmm. them. Uh, so again, we can say with a, with a straight face that there is archaeobotanical data to suggest that spiked wines did in fact exist outside the pages of all that Greek literature that we know uh, about, which, which talks about these, these potions at length. So, so now we have actual scientific data to support it. And since the book came out in 2020, there have been an additional couple discoveries that continue to point to the existence of spiked wine in the area. So we know it exists. And the question I think that remains is, you know, how close do these potions get to the ancient mysteries, you know, in, in Eleusis itself, and then in the beginnings of Christianity in Italy? Is there anything in the text of the New Testament and in the writings of Paul, for instance, that suggests anything about this beyond, uh, obviously, many Christians will discount the Apocrypha and, um, you know, anything that, that was discovered in 1945 in, a, in an urn. What, is there anything to point to in the New Testament that gives some credence to this? 
Sure. There's, there's, a, there's a debatable passage for sure. You know, the, the New Testament is sort of like a Rorschach test. You find in there the Jesus that you want or the Paul that you want. But, you know, I have mentioned before uh, one of Paul's letters to the Corinthians. And it seems that Paul himself, you know, the, the greatest evangelist for the Christian faith, I, I don't think he was any fan of this, uh, of this pagan continuity. And so mm-hmm. there, there's a portion in one of his letters to the Corinthians where he's actually yelling at the Corinthians for partaking of the table of demons and for overindulging in their version of the Eucharist. And there's this peculiar mm-hmm. word in Greek. This is why the Greek matters uh, so much. He says, it's why so many of you are weak and sick and a number of you are dying. And the word he uses for dying, komointai, it does mean to die. It's usually translated into English as to sleep. And so, you know, it's a strange phrase either way. Uh, but here we have Paul sort of, you know, chastising the, the burgeoning community in Corinth, not far from Eleusis, by the way. You could probably ride a bicycle if you're in shape. Mm-hmm. Here he is chastising the Corinthians for using what, what looks like a lethal version of the Eucharist. Uh, so again, you don't know what to make of it, but it's a very, it's a very strange passage. Yeah, a, a lethal version of the Eucharist. One one imagines it's just not a, a cracker that's too large. It, it's got to. Yeah. <laughs> There's got to be something else going on there. Remind me of the the sequencing here. Is Paul the earliest writer? Is this like 35 years after the, the death of Christ? Is that when Paul was was writing? Could be a little shorter than yeah, probably in the 50s. He was writing some of his earliest letters, mm-hmm. and it is where we have the earliest descriptions of the Eucharist. Uh, the the other canonical gospels will follow Paul. Right. Okay. Well, this is fascinating. What, so what, um, is, is there new lines of evidence you want to explore in the documentary? I mean, is there, um, I can imagine much of it is your wanting and needing to re- simply recapitulate what you did in the book, but is there anything that is, that is fundamentally different that's taking the, the conversation in a new direction? Yeah, I think so. I think, you know, it's been, it's been a fun conversation for me over the past uh, two, three years, and it, it's been really fun to watch some of this, this new data come in where I kind of least expected it. You know, again, I presented the book as, as sort of a framing exercise, you know, not offering mm-hmm. definitive evidence one way or the other, but really framing the role that psychotropic compounds played in our ancient past, particularly, you know, in, the, in this Greco-Roman lineage and the way it would have affected the biggest religion in the world today. These are, these are like big questions. And again, like uh, having been raised Catholic, I'm, I'm, I'm always fascinated by that, by that proposition uh, in the Gospel of John and elsewhere about you know, consuming the blood and flesh of Christ in order to gain immortality. You know, it's, 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 it, this thing of transubstantiation is something uh, I, can never fully, I can never fully grok, right? And so after that framing exercise, there have been some really cool discoveries, uh, which didn't exist a couple of years ago. And they sort of, they seem to drop from the sky and make headlines every once in a while. One of my favorites from earlier this year, and you can Google it, uh, was uh, Tripping in the Bronze Age. Uh, there was a discovery, uh, it was in the New York Times, there was a discovery in Menorca on the Balearic Islands, uh, which are off the eastern coast of Spain. Um, and what they found in, in a cave there was the first definitive archaeochemical evidence that indigenous Europeans were actually using psychedelic compounds to enter into altered states of consciousness and ecstasy. Uh, what they found uh, in that cave were not what you might expect. So it's not mushrooms, it's not you know, LSD or DMT or some of the psychedelics you're probably familiar with today. But what you find in the ancient world are these solanaceous compounds, these, these tropane alkaloid-containing compounds. What they found in the hair of several individuals uh, were uh, ephedrine, uh, which is a stimulant, uh, together mm-hmm. with atropine and scopolamine, which are very trippy tropane alkaloids. You find them in things like henbane, 
or mandrake. Mm-hmm. These are very witchy plants, right? They can put you into a trance sometimes for, for days in the case of uh, datura intoxication. So in order to be experimenting with, with plants like that, you know, these, these indigenous Bronze Age Europeans really had to know what they were doing. These, these, were, these were shamanic experts uh, who were very mm. skilled yeah, at well, navigating. Yeah, these are also e- Eucharists that can kill you. It's, not, <laughs> uh, it, it's, uh, it's safer to be experimenting with psilocybin mushrooms than with uh, Datura. Yeah, I wouldn't recommend Datura yeah. for, for listeners. Yeah. Well, it is, it's all fascinating stuff. <laughs> Let's circle back to your, uh, you, the protagonist in all of this. Now, how is it that you have spent this much time and attention on this topic and never taken a psychedelic? I mean, I get asked that question a lot, so I'm thinking about a, an interesting way to answer it, both for you and for me. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm just coming off uh, a fresh reading of Waking Up, which is, oh, nice. which is a wonderful book. I read it many years ago, and I just reread it. And I love how you describe the psychedelic experience at the very end. I mean, I love how you begin it, by the way, too, about your experience with MDMA, if you don't mind mm-hmm. my mentioning. But it's, it's, no, no, no. It's, uh, you talk about, you know, it's very similar to this mystery tradition about you know, achieving absolute sobriety in the midst of this altered state. And you, you talk about yourself being sane for the first time. Again, that's a pretty decent description of the, this ancient mystery complex that we're talking about, this notion of finding the true self, finding reality at its core, right? That's what, that's what interests me, is, you know, the, the, this truth proposition. And again, this is textbook Platonism in the allegory of the cave, you know? We're down here looking mm-hmm. at shadows being projected on the cave in front of us, chained manacled and you know behind us all the while are the true forms is is life as it truly is and i was always fascinated with this this noetic quality that that you talk about that others talk about on psychedelics this notion of finding the truest version of reality not just themselves but really you know finding like the source of of life the source of the cosmos like that's what's interesting to me psychedelics appear to be a shortcut to do that when, when approached in the right way, but as you also point out in the end of waking up, you know, the, <laughs> the peaks can be high, but the valleys are low. Mm. And this can be kind of dangerous stuff. And so, you know, I'm, I'm happy to admit I've always been kind of scared. And I grew up uh, learning how to just say no to drugs from Nancy Reagan and having mm. police officers come into my classroom when I was in fifth grade telling me all about drugs uh, and how they were all bad all the time, no matter what. Uh, and so that kind of stuck with me. And then as I began this investigation, like I really wanted to be, uh, I wanted to try my best to be objective. And so, you know, my experience just doesn't really matter in terms of, you know, hunting down the data. And then as time went on, it just became this kind of like insurmountable thing where, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm primed on the experience. I'm, I'm really hunting uh, the experience of psychedelics and not, not the psychedelics themselves. Because the more I was looking into history, again, the more and more I would find ritual. And I would find myth, and I would find the stories that would accompany this traditional usage. And I thought, oh, well, that's something worth, worth investigating. I, I can always get my hands on some, on some mushrooms. I'm sure I could find some LSD somewhere, and I get offered all the time. Mm. But what interests me is the way that, that our ancestors would have, would have utilized this technology. That's what I refer to, this, this technology to achieve these altered states, and for what purpose. And I think the purpose is, is, is freedom. And mm. I think the, you have this, this awesome and really simple definition of spirituality, which is rigorous introspection. That's what I'm interested in. You know, so you know, I had a Kairos retreat when I was studying with the Jesuits as a teenager. I studied Theravada Buddhism. And you know, after my Sanskrit studies, I got really into yoga, obviously. And so like, I've, you know, I've, I've done as much as I could, I think, 
and, and continued to meditate. But this this notion of um, rigorous introspection, you know, towards that truth proposition of of finding ah, of finding freedom in the moment, right, moment to moment. That's what interests me, not necessarily the peak experience. Well, I mean, so the reasons why not are can be enumerated as you describe. I mean, if you, you know, if you're it's totally rational to be apprehensive uh, around the prospect of having a bad experience on psychedelics. Although I think you know the risk of that can be significantly mitigated in the in the right context. You know, I mean, certainly if you do it in in the context of you know where you're in the presence of a a therapist of some sort who who does this for a living, you know, albeit illegally, almost everywhere mm. you can be in in good hands. And you know, if you're having a bad if you're really having a bad time, someone can bring you down. And even a bad time can be properly reframed such that it, it still can be an, an importantly beneficial experience for many people. But again, the caveat still stands that there, there are some people certainly who shouldn't take psychedelics. And I would say that the exclusion criteria used in most of this research, that if you or a first order relative have had the experience of psychosis, you know, that's a... Um, that's a deal breaker, you know, and um, it's just too much of a risk. And that's, uh, you know, I, I would tend to follow that. But for most people, I do think that what we need culturally, I mean, we, we, I think we need something like a modern mysteries of Eleusis, right? I mean, we need, we, mm. we need you know, whether we, we each figure out how to reconstruct that for ourselves in a way that is private and and then we're going to rejoin the culture from there, or we, it actually becomes a proper, you know, cultural uh, hub of some sort. I mean, I, I you know, obviously it's, people are, are doing this in their own ways. I mean, I th- you know, I've never been to Burning Man, but, you know, w- when I t- t- look at the photos of that place, I, I see people essentially attempting something like that for themselves. You know, I, I got to think a very high percentage of people there at some point are on psychedelics, at least some of the time. And, uh, it just seems like there what we want ultimately is a you know a perfectly sane and scientifically informed and medically safe and culturally intellectually non-sectarian way of framing and and experiencing the deepest wisdom that is available to us and and there's there are caveats here i mean i think there the relationship between the psychedelic experience and the the freedom that's available in ordinary waking consciousness is somewhat tangential. It's not the same thing, but it's, you know, I think for, for the vast majority of people, at least in a modern context, it's only psychedelics that will convince them that there really is a there there, that it's so that they, they can give sufficient attention to a drier method like meditation such that they actually you know, break through and realize what there is to be noticed in the present moment about ordinary waking consciousness. So it's just so useful for so many of us to be convinced that there's the you know the, the life project of kenosis, you know, ultimately is available and um, is not just a matter of believing something on insufficient evidence, uh, and that you don't have and that you don't have to believe anything on insufficient evidence in order to embrace it. Hmm. So yeah, it's hard not to. You know, I you know I'm not uh, I don't want to push, but you know it's it's hard not to to badger you a little bit here because you <laughs> you have given so much of your life to uh, exploring you know the past evidence of the significance of this, and 
Yeah, I mean, I, I just it's hard. It, it is hard to understand why you wouldn't want to have the experience. Like, so just yeah, I, I put it to you: if if the mysteries of Eleusis, if we found somewhere that they continued, you know, the the Christians and the Visigoths didn't eradicate them because they they sprung up on an island in the Mediterranean that you know, no one has v- really visited and have been humming along since. Wouldn't you want to experience them and well, find so, out? Well, what now they you're talking, Sam. Let's let's go find yeah. that island. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, but, uh, essentially, that but that, that is some some modern variant of that is is springing up all over the place at the moment. Yeah, some variant, and I think that that's what I'm wrestling right. with. You know, in addition to the you know, the provisos you offered, I would also say I, I guess I'm on the hunt for something that is historically authentic. You know, to I to who I am, and also also culturally and. And something that that can be made sacred, and I'm not sure I've I've found that yet because I'm still hunting for the evidence itself. I I do think the hypothesis is worth investigating that our ancestors did know a lot more about this technology than we do, right? And I'm not necessarily interested in in co-opting that search from the traditional communities that have managed to keep alive that kind of experience for so many centuries and millennia in a context that is perfectly meaningful to them, you know. As as a, a white Catholic guy uh, who grew up in Philadelphia and has been blessed uh, by life in, in so many ways, I'm on the hunt for that for that authenticity, I think, and it's uh, it's been elusive, no pun. Yeah, well, I, I think with 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 quote authenticity, you get some of the you know, the random contingencies of history, right? So you have the fact that certain plants and and fungi are you know indigenous to certain areas and not others right so and and just given in the, the in the ancient context you you just would have had no scientific understanding of the underlying chemistry or biology or botany so you know as we said you know they, they didn't even know what alcohol was when they're busy fermenting things and there's nothing more authentic ultimately than Poisoning yourself with datura because you don't know what the proper dose is, or if there even is a proper dose of, of that particular flower. And uh, what's to be hoped for here is a modern, a modern synthesis, ultimately, right? I mean, this is a, this is not this obviously the same project as understanding the past, but to move forward into the present. And you know, if there if, if there's some wisdom to be extracted here, I mean, if, if Cicero is a voice we should listen to. And uh, if there's a continuity from his experience to our own, uh, I just think we, you know, at some level, we want to take what's what's happening at Johns Hopkins and elsewhere on board and you know, improve the totality of human knowledge as it relates to the tools that are available to produce these kinds of transformative experiences and insights. I think you're right. And I think over time, we will collectively develop what that container looks like. You know, there are, are so many people who are already finding relief from psychedelics mm-hmm. and, and so many, for so many different conditions. And so, you know, the relief of suffering has garnered much of the attention. Yeah. But you know, if you go back to some of the early studies in the 1950s and then certainly before that, um, there was this other dimension to psychedelics. And certainly when you talk to traditional communities, there's this whole other dimension to psychedelics that we're just beginning to learn. And so, you know, our, our, our cultural experiment in the 1960s Kind of like the book we were talking about, The Road to Eleusis, was just sort of, it, it felt like the wrong movement at the wrong time, or maybe, maybe it was mm-hmm. just a little too much than we can handle, which is not to say there, there weren't any artistic benefits, creative benefits 
1960s. The music is awesome. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I think we're in the process of, of developing what that cultural container looks like. And so, you know, in, in future writing projects and this documentary and conversations like this, I, I do think it's helpful to really talk about the big why for all this. Like, if the hypothesis is correct, what would a modern-day mystery experience actually look like? And, and I think, you know, I don't have the answer for that. You know, the, the, the more I study, the, the more intuition I'm getting that it, it is something infrequent and to be, you know, approached with, with a lot of care and, yeah. and maturity. And again, and, and I love how you write about and waking up about like a healthy spiritual life is something uh, to begin only once, you know, your physical and mental and social and ethical lives have been sufficiently matured. And so when does that happen for most people? Am I even there yet? Uh, maybe. Hmm. Definitely wasn't in my 20s or 30s. And so that makes me think about elusis, something that was reserved for those who are typically later in life, or at least midlife forward. And everybody's hmm. different. And, you know, again, for those who are acutely suffering, that's a totally different proposition. But, you know, for your average, you know, existentially angsted person uh, who's wondering about the mystery of life, I, th- I think this is it's something to be approached, well, legally, which is not the case yet. Um, and then eventually, you know, responsibly and authentically and ethically in the years to come in, um, in a sort of very careful and, and very carefully reserved moment. And I guess that, that's, those are some of my thoughts in, in, in recent months. Well, we're, it sounds like we're back on the long road to Eleusis. We'll, <laughs> we'll, uh, I'll see you there. <laughs> Brian, it's been great to talk to you. Congratulations on the book. And I, I, I await the documentary with, um, with pleasure. And uh, yeah, thank you for your time. Best of luck with, with all of it. Thanks again, Sam. <laughs>